Rebecca, can you believe we are nearly halfway through this year? Oh my God. When you put it like that, no, I hadn't thought about it like that at all. Wow. It is a wow. It's a big wow. 2022 is flying away from us and we are now officially in the month of May. And I think although on some levels it feels like this year has gone in the blink of an eye, when I stop to actually reflect on everything that has happened so far in 2022, there has been a lot. Yeah, we've had the cost of living crisis, we've had the ongoing challenges of the pandemic as government restrictions were lifted, finally getting a new charity minister and a commission chair, and the return of live events and in-person working. It's been a lot, right, and if you're a fundraiser, there are no shortage of challenges to come. Finding new channels to connect with supporters, grappling with the digital landscape, and of course, operating in that increasingly hostile political environment, a personal favourite of us on this podcast. (laughs) But if this is the sort of thing you are thinking about, then you might enjoy Third Sector's Fundraising Conference, a two-day virtual event taking place this month. That's right. Our 2022 fundraising conference is running on the 26th and the 27th of May, where we will be joined by a host of brilliant speakers bringing inspiration and practical solutions to your fundraising challenges. It's a fantastic opportunity to network, debate and learn from your colleagues. Right. And we'll also be sharing more about an exciting new podcast spin-off project. Um, (laughs) I'm afraid I can't say more at this point, but if you are a fan of this podcast and that sounds intriguing, do come along to find out more and join in the discussion. It will be 100% worth it. You can find out more about our digital conference at thirdsectorfundraisingconference.co.uk. Rebecca and I will look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing the charity sector's class problem. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a tiny knitting project with big ambitions. Um, But first, Emily, did you watch Eurovision this weekend? I actually missed it, which is really unusual for me because I'm a massive Eurovision fan and you can usually rely on me to throw a big watch party round the house. But I was away this weekend for a friend's birthday, but I did hear it was an absolute corker. Did you watch? I did. So I actually went to a Eurovision party, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, I have to say, I honestly wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to many of the songs because I was a bit distracted by the fact that there were nachos and a dog in a bow tie at this party. Understandable. It's a great party. It was a very cute dog. Um, uh, But then, of course, the scores started to come in and suddenly everyone in the room is looking at the screen and going wait is this are we doing well is this what it's like not to be internationally hated like what is going on we're just so used to zero points uk zero points but i did actually listen to spaceman before we sat down to record today first time i've heard it i have to say absolute banger i really want to know where that pearl encrusted boiler suit came from it is great it is absolutely great and i I completely adore sam Ryder. i just he's like a golden retriever that is getting fussed when you hear him Mm. in interviews he's just so happy he's so utterly full of joy and genuine enthusiasm for you know the, the the amazing ride that he's on doing Eurovision and it just you can't you can't he's one of those people you couldn't you can't imagine speaking to him and not grinning like when he's speaking I just find myself smiling um and obviously the result because he was not the winner he came second and the result was amazing for Ukraine and you know I really just it's really lovely to see that expression of solidarity absolutely because of course Eurovision can be very political mm. a lot of the time so this was a really enjoyable year all round, I would say. I need to watch on catch up. But 
speaking of also potential winners, Third Sector itself is also heading for awards season. Awkward segue, but I I love it. We have incredibly exciting news. Uh, So we've been shortlisted for an incredible four awards in the past month. Um, So first up, my lovely co-host Emily has been shortlisted for the Fiona McPherson New Editor Award at the 2022 British Society of Magazine Editors Talent Awards, which is incredibly well deserved. And yeah, I'm very, very excited about this. Oh, shucks. Thanks very much. No, really excited. It's a lovely... Uh, thing to be a part of although you know lots of lots of great competition I'm keeping great company in there but that's very exciting but I'm equally excited of course about the fact that Third Sector has been nominated for three awards at the Professional Publishers Association Awards the PPAs yes we are in the running for Special Interest Magazine of the Year whoop, whoop. for Third Sector Rebecca here has been shortlisted for Writer of the Year which I think anyone who has read her stuff will know she very well deserved and can't wait to watch her walk away with that particular gong. And last but certainly not least, this very podcast has been shortlisted for Podcast of the Year. I'm so chuffed about the podcast award because we're up against three shows produced by the BBC. Um, Yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's great. And I think part of the reason we've been shortlisted is because we've had such fantastic listener figures over the past year. So basically what I'm saying is if you're listening to this show and you've listened to other episodes, thank you so much. Like this is, this is amazing. Absolutely. One of our favourite things is hearing from our podcast listeners when we are out and about or getting feedback from you on social media. We so enjoy doing this. It's just great. Great to have you all with us. And hopefully we'll get a lovely award just for the cherry on the cake later this summer. Yeah, we will find out in mid-June uh, about those two sets of awards or mid to late June. Mid to uh, late June. But so, who knows? even if we only get shortlisted, yeah. it's a very special moment for us. So thank you all for sticking with us. Please do continue to do so. It is lovely that people are listening. It's it not just sure us is. in a glass room making each other laugh. <laughs> so should we get on with the show? Let's do it. Rebecca, in the latest edition of Third Sector, you wrote an in-depth feature exploring whether the charity sector has a problem with class. What did you find? Okay, so first up, yes, the charity sector absolutely has a class problem. Um, Everyone I spoke to, I think, barely managed to avoid putting the word duh on (laughs) the end when I asked them that. They were just like, yes. Um, So perhaps the most pertinent question is, in fact, how big is the charity sector's class problem? And the answer essentially is no one knows. Right. One of the biggest challenges that was repeatedly mentioned in your feature is that the sector lacks data on people's social background in individual organisations, on the different parts of the sector, on the sector as a whole, or on how it presents as a problem. But as Sarah Atkinson, the chief executive of the Social Mobility Foundation, pointed out, social background is a strong predictor of educational and employment outcomes in every bit of the UK economy where data does exist. So it's safe to assume that the charity sector very much has a problem. Absolutely. And while there isn't a lot of hard quantitative data available, there are lots of anecdotes and stories from people who are working in the sector and come from a working class background. And I just want to say I'm so grateful to everyone who spoke to me for this piece. People were sharing often, you know, really personal and quite painful stories about experiences they've had, ways they've been treated in the sector. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for speaking to me about that. 
And what they were telling me about anecdotally was kind of everything from workplace cultures where middle class experiences were assumed to be the default and exclusionary job ads, which ask for irrelevant qualifications, to HR practices, which do things like taking training costs out of pay packets. So basically you're leaving people without savings at risk of homelessness. Uh, which, you know, no employer should be doing that. There were also a lot of really interesting reflections on the language that was being used for the people who are being supported by charities. There was this feeling that the sector tends to think of those it's supporting as being somehow kind of other. So working class staff members are often left thinking, hang on, is that is that my family you're talking about? Right. And so what were the solutions that the people you spoke to identified? Okay, so first up, we really do need to get that data. We need to work out the scale of the challenge that we're dealing with. And that is starting to happen through work by the Reclaim Foundation, which is looking specifically at this issue among charities that support people on low incomes and among think tanks. And there's also work by the Social Mobility Foundation, which we'll be hearing more about in a minute. Um, But crucially, what people were saying was rather than waiting around until we have the data, one thing we can be doing is to start having this conversation more and being more open to allowing people to share their experiences. Um, And one thing that also came out of this piece was the need to think holistically about solutions to tackle this issue. So at the same time as we're having all these conversations that the sector needs to be having about race and gender and disability and sexuality, we've also got to be having it about class as well and not seeing it as some kind of separate issue to deal with. So to dig deeper into these issues, we spoke to Alan Lally Francis, Head of Influencing at the Charity Leaders Body at Kivo. And we started by asking him where and how he sees class issues manifesting in the sector. A few ways. I think one aspect of it is defining what we mean by class. And sometimes that's part of the problem. I think um, people have their own views of what we mean, of what a working class person is. Um, is it to do with how we talk? Is it the way we dress? Is it our economic circumstances and background or is it our current one? So I was talking to someone recently and they were younger, two parents who kind of split up and um, their dad was a director in a company, had a swimming pool in the house, used to go to ski holidays and went to private school. But on his mum's side, later on in life, you know, he received education and maintenance allowance, never had a painted bedroom, uh, including a time without even having a bed uh, because of money. Saw his mum crying when she couldn't feed us because she was denied benefits after being made redundant from her admin job. Now, those sentences are both true, but apparently in contrast. Um, and I guess they were saying to me that everyone wants to tell you what class is, but it's sometimes not obvious. It's not clear. And I think that makes things a bit challenging to start off with and makes self-defining a bit more tricky. Mm. Um, I think that's also just a bit of a, an obsession, I think we know in Britain, around class and in our social exchanges. I certainly remember being at university and like people like mimicking like kind of the way I phrase things like they'd like in it in it and they'd be like say that again Alan of like, oh, here we go then I think even when you go to like parties and stuff and you start assimilating to different social culture you know the first questions are always what university you went not what you studied but I feel like what people are trying to do is form their judgments of who you are whether you're acceptable whether uh, and later in life, it's what do you do for a living? And they, they try and get out what your positions are. So I think our society is set up to really make judgments um, in early first exchanges with people you don't know. And um, I think the way we network at actually in our sector sometimes can, can kind of have hints of that as well. Um, so I think that's, that's just a bit of background. I think for lots of people from work-class backgrounds, I think entering the sector is an obvious problem low pay or no pay at early career 
makes it quite a restrictive career. Even as we move along, um, low pay continues comparatively. Um, we know that there's a class pay gap. Charities, many charities are still based in kind of local communities across the UK, but increasingly there are big charities have become a bit more corporate sometimes in, in their way of doing things. They're based in big, expensive cities, uh, working on issues that are local to the population, but not representative of the people as soon as you walk in uh, through the door. We know there's an issue with qualifications, climate of degrees, postgraduate degrees. Um, and I think this just means that certain classes are often overrepresented in the sector. Um, and I personally know brilliant people who would be keen to join and work in our sector, but just can't get in. Um, so I think we talk a lot about equality, but then we kind of close the door off. And I think there's also this thing about class polish and, and accents and things. I, I think looking a certain way, speaking a certain way and having that social capital. So while we've made some progress on diversity, um, I think what's considered more work-class accents are not encouraged. I certainly try my best to pronounce T's a lot more. I think my accent has changed a bit. Um, not just, be- not purposely sometimes, but sometimes there is a pressure of of kind of um, talking in a way that's kind of acceptable. I think, for example, when I worked in the international development sector, you know, um, where country staff are not represented, it's often white middle-class staff. And I think that's a bit problematic given the issues you're working in. Um, but as I say, it's not just about recruitment. That's the first thing. It's about retention and keeping people in the sector as well. It's about that culture um, that allows working class people to feel like they belong, feel safe and thrive in a way that's quite authentic to them. So I think that's probably a few things. Mm. And that what you're saying there about um, sort of having to kind of fit in and sort of try and look like you've got that polish, that that sounds that's incredibly hard work for somebody who's also working incredibly hard doing a job at the same time. Do you know what I mean? That's a lot of processing power that is being used there. Um, you know, we're kind of creating barriers within the job almost. And as Sarah Atkinson said, actually, in your feature, she made a quote, which I thought was one of the most interesting quotes of the entire piece, was that she said, you know, generally, when it comes to gender, when it comes to ethnicity, or whether or not you have a disability, that doesn't have anything to do with how good you are at your job. But she said, socioeconomic advantage has this really nasty, insidious habit of manifesting in a way that looks like merit. And I think that's everything that you just spoke to there, Alan. And and Sarah went on to talk about things like if you have intellectual display, if you have social confidence, social and cultural capital, or being comfortable in lots of different environments. Now, she listed off those attributes and she said, actually, what you're talking about there is privilege, but it sounds like someone who's high performing. So how those things overlap, Mm. I think is, is really interesting. And I think also the, the thing you brought up there was really interesting around um, sort of that you've got this kind of divide between the more corporate end of charity and then kind of small local community groups where, you know, the people who are doing the work are also of the communities. Um, and one of the issues that came up a lot in, in the interviews that I was doing, and I think we talked about it as well, um, was this notion that you have people who have, quote unquote, lived experience and they were seen in the sector as people who can be part of focus groups. And then you also have people who are charity management material, but those can't be the same people. Either you're a management or you've got you've got kind of the lived experience. How does the sector wean itself away from that idea, do you think? Yes, yeah, a good question. I think, you know, charities do a lot of good work. I think the pandemic has shown that they've their value to society has really been recognised, and that's a good thing. I think though. There's still a quite 
what I call a stakeholder syndrome or a paternalistic relationship with communities mm-hmm. where we keep them a bit at arm's length and you know we have the solutions to problems and I think with that thinking means we don't think enough about how representative our solutions to problems are and whether mm-hmm. they are true and correct um, ultimately like organizations I think need to reflect the change they seek and that starts also with their staff um, you know, I kind of often say I work in policy, which is particularly homogenous and, you know, policy is about solutions to problems. But, you know, people have a lot of like, uh, I often find like technical experience, which is really valuable, but lived experience is often missing. And you'd think it would be quite obvious to get people with actual experience of an issue to be proposing the solutions. Like I would find it hard to propose concrete solutions on women's issues for example (laughs) like I could in theory but it would be better just to hear how it actually is for a woman for example and so so yeah charities working on quality issues and um, it's unfortunate that you know people with lived experience of the issue are rarely at the forefront of change and you know I've talked about you know corporatization of charities and how um, it's sad sometimes just to see just speaking of London you know uh, really good charities that are working on issues that really impact the community on their doorstep, doorstep, but they're kind of kept at arm's length and kind of used as focus groups, but not bought in. And I think it's kind of what you were saying, Emily, about social cultural capital as well, that you need to kind of fit into that space that you, those kind of, um, that way of talking, that kind of jokes, um, the kind of conversation at socials and, um, sometimes when people don't feel part of that or don't know what to say because they're processing how to fit in, I think it's often perceived that people maybe are not interested or don't have the drive to kind of achieve the kind of organisation's goals. Absolutely. So I think it's been um, unanimously agreed that we need to start having a conversation about this issue. And we also know that there's a massive problem with lack of data around this issue. Um, I think it's fair to say that we are seeing debates and discussions happening about this already on social media. Um, But where else do you think we need to see this conversation taking place and how does it need to be conducted? I think the obvious one is um, in leadership spaces, in organisations. You know, I think as part of the wider EDI framework, it's not just a a siloed approach where there's a group for it. It should be something that should be on a regular uh, agenda of senior management teams and leaders and and looking at a way that's quite current, looking at what the need is. So I think definitely in the workplace, I think conversations like this, you know, it always starts by just having the conversation, letting people know what the issue is. So I think, you know, for example, class is an issue that I I feel is not talked about enough, or at least not in the way it should be. So um, at Akiva Fairstar Conference in September, um, we will be doing a session on class and we'll be getting, you know, Roger Harden to come and speak to us about some of the issues impacting it and you know we'll we'll talk about it in a way that's open honest authentic challenging and you know and i think that's the way it needs to be talked about um it needs to be done in a way that's quite honest of the people um and i think there's there's going to be humility and openness that needs to needs to come with it you know like we've seen on other edi issues like race we need to say look you know we're sorry we haven't done enough we're going to change things almost by passing the mic almost and giving up that power. And, and I'd quite like to see leaders, and I know there are some leaders who are doing this already, but, you know, almost start by saying, we know there's a problem. We're going to change things and this is how we're going to do it and communicate that. 
uh, with their staff. And that brings a level of accountability. I think that's quite important because otherwise these conversations are left to, are left kind of in pubs or kind of uh, social media has its benefits as well, like on social media. But I think it needs these conversations we need to find ways to make things more central. So, you know, the media is important as well in kind of um, raising awareness of these issues. Yeah, no, it seemed to me that the kind of the issue around kind of having the conversation, like there were so many people who were sort of saying, you know, because there's this pressure to kind of fit in, to to to, to talk the talk. Uh, I know that was something that you, you kind of talked very powerfully about. Because there is all this pressure, people aren't necessarily talking about their own experiences and they're kind of camouflaging, they're sort of hiding in plain sight. If they do have experience of, of kind of, you know, being from a working class background, of experiencing, you know, negative impact in the sector, negative behaviour in the sector, they're not really talking about it. So if we're starting to have this conversation, people will feel more comfortable to engage with that conversation and to to, to talk about their own experiences and to join in. Um, but kind of as well as kind of having a conversation, which I agree is a really important starting point, is there any other action you would like to see being taken within the sector? Yeah, reflecting on the culture, I think, as well. So I think, you know, there's learning that needs to be done in this, like we have on kind of other issues. We kind of, as you mentioned um, Emily earlier on we need to change the way we perceive success in our organizations so we need to really review and interrogate a kind of our own biases in our hiring decisions and in our organizational culture so everything from accents to to kind of that class policy social capital job description requirements I think um, we need to look at data you know there's not a lot of it out there so there's still action we can take without it so but I think more data will help us all see how how big the problem is in the work we do. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, an obvious one is developing kind of accountability mechanisms. So like developing language and cultural fr- frameworks, I think, that challenge the status quo. So including in our leadership. So at Kiva, we work a lot with leaders and it's important that leaders are representative of some of the issues people face in on the issues they're working on. That isn't a requirement, but I feel like the norm is that you don't have to be, right? And I think it would be nice to see a shift where at least on some of the issues or parts of the issues, there are requirements for leaders to have some sort of knowledge or experience of it. You know, we were talking about lived experience. So if you just focus on the the degrees and the technical knowledge, you'll get a certain type of person. If you start asking or even demanding of experience. I think it might change uh, kind of the types of leaders we get as well and maybe change the culture around that as well. So I think data, uh, language and cultural frameworks, um, EDI plans, more internal conversations and a recognition that this is an issue, I, I think would be a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that point you made about kind of qualifications is so interesting that if we're demanding qualifications that people typically do at a young age and actually their starting life wasn't conducive to being able to do well in those exams, you're just shutting out a whole raft of talented people for not having a bit of paper when actually what you want is the thing the bit of paper shows and they could still be talented in all those ways. Yeah. Um, You know, so I think that was really interesting. There's quite often, you know, hiring for potential and stuff. But I think that's scary for a lot of people of what could go wrong. And I th- job descriptions are still quite uniform, I'm, I'm afraid to say. They don't. Um, it's getting better, 
But as David Lacey observed in Rebecca's feature, um, and he's director of fundraising at the Eve Appeal, he regularly says that he notices entry-level fundraising assistant jobs being advertised that he would be ineligible to apply for despite being a fundraising director with 16 years of experience. Yeah. I mean, something's broken about that. Yeah, and I think that the other thing he was saying as well was about um, asking for a degree or equivalent. And he's like, if I don't have a degree, how do I know what an equivalent experience <laughs> yeah. is? Like, that's... That's mad. Um, yeah. No, yeah, and he's absolutely right. You know, like you can't really measure equivalent. It's a bit, bit, a bit naive. Like unless you have, if unless you can really say what that equivalent is to people, like they just won't won't bother or try, or be very hard for them to get into the door. Mm. And that's and I think that's the thing. The status quo is like we just need to start from entry level to higher up to have a degree. Like, I think the starting point should be like, let's look at this job. What are some of the requirements we need? And can we build some of these in? And how many of these are related to degrees or not? And I think quite a lot aren't actually. And I think there's just a bit of laziness. And I think, so I think a lot of this needs some work um, put into it. And um, yeah, nothing I would say, like, you know, you mentioned about kind of what action needs to be taken. I think reflecting on the culture and how we socialize. So I've, I've often said in, in previous organizations you know like you know it's nice to go to the pub but for some people you know that's not where they'd like to socialize for a range of reasons but i, I find like you know icebreakers and kind of company socials quite interesting as well um a friend was telling me recently they they work in the sector for a big organization and on an icebreaker they they were asked to introduce themselves in a call and talk about a side project they were working on or a book they were reading <laughs> now the pressure to to come up with something because firstly there's a guilt attached because also people from certain backgrounds have caring responsibilities like like some people have lots of things going on in their life where they're just just turning up to work and at nine o'clock is is an achievement in itself right I can say that you know sometimes from my own experience like you know having a sister who's been in care from the age of 13 mum who we have caring responsibilities from who lives kind of kind of local council state in Whitechapel you know, there's having a side project, <laughs> like um, reading a book. We all love to do those things. But I guess, I mean, if I was asked to do that, I just have to make something up. I'd be forced to almost lie or I'd be forced to take the risk and have judgment. And they were just telling me that, you know, it was talking about their favorite, you know, people talking about Puerto Rican novel they were reading or, you know, wine, uh, a wine trip to Bordeaux. And these are all great things. But his answer was uh, just a book on football that he'd read two years ago. And the reply was quite, <laughs> there was a lot of silence. And yeah. uh, he just said to me, you know, he's fine with it. He's big enough, ugly enough to handle it. But it might make other people comfortable. And it's kind of that point you said, uh, I'm talking about these experiences now a bit later in my career. Um, I probably wouldn't earlier in the career. So if there's a way that we can just reflect on our cultures and ensure that people, particularly as they come into the sector, can feel like they can talk um, and and be themselves, because I think quite often our, our social interactions which is a big part of why people end up leaving. It's almost like, you know, we talk about bringing yourself to the table, but what are we doing like uh, to do that? Mm. And quite often, you know, people are one person outside of work and then inside. And we all have that uh, to certain levels. But um, yeah, I think that imposter syndrome must really set in uh, as, as a result. 
Yeah. And it's not just about the recruitment. It's about retention and about making sure people feel happy and willing and, you know, fulfill staying in the sector um, rather than leaving to go off and do something else. So Akivo is uh, working with the Social Mobility Foundation uh, to get more charities involved in the Social Mobility Foundation's index. So this is a, an index of employers looking at, you know, basically ranking them on how well they're doing on various issues related to social mobility. And at the moment, there's a real problem that there are very few charities on that list. We've got a lot of banks, we've got a lot of legal firms, not a lot of charities. Um, And Ikivo is actively involved in trying to get more charities to take part. So yeah, can you tell us a bit about that work? Yeah, yeah. Um, The the index has been running for five years since 2017. And yeah, its aim is to kind of equip employers uh, to break down the barriers of social mobility class in their own organisations. and it's grown significantly in the last couple of years, um, seen an increase of 70%. Unfortunately, as you say, there's a lack of charities being involved. And again, I don't know if it goes back to the problem charities are busy or they think they don't have a problem, but you know, the people who do contribute are largely from, you know, the, the private and public sectors. Um, so this year, I think they wanted to focus into get more charities to do that. So we kind of partner with them and we're current and they're running a pilot scheme this year. So. Uh, they're asking charities to become trailblazers in the sector to to be almost the first ones, and I think there has been an increase uh, this year um, in more charities um, either contributing to the index or promising to do so next year, which is really good. And I think in terms of what support they will get, um, they will get additional support this year. There'll be focus group sessions. There'll be feedback reports. People don't have to fill in all of it. They can fill parts of it so it's quite flexible they have people at social mobility foundation can talk them through it um, they can get feedback in certain areas um, whichever part that they the organization feels the most beneficial to them so um, the deadline i think is the end of may but there's lots of flexibility on this so they really want charities to kind of um, get involved and it's not too late so I, I would encourage lots of charities and you know it will just help them see the kind of where they need to go on this issue and while being provided with support to, to get there. And what's the best way for them to do that? Is that to contact Akivo or is that to go directly to the Social Mobility Foundation? Yeah, it's it's either. Um, I would probably start with kind of um, contacting them. I mean, I've got email addresses if you if you want them here or or they can contact me and I can kind of forward on to the right people at Akivo. Okay, brilliant. We'll, I'll pop uh, uh, some links in the show notes for people if people are interested. Um, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks for having me. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. Rebecca, what do you have for us this week? So this week, we've got a fundraising project called The Big Knit. Of course, charities famously are often told to stick to their knitting when they, you know, let's say, offer social commentary that certain politicians find inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this story is actually about knitting. Uh, Age UK has a partnership with Innocent Smoothies. So have you ever seen, they come in these kind of little bottles that are maybe sort of, you know, 15 centimetres high, and they have little woolly hats on the tops of the bottles in the shops. I have seen those. Yeah. So it turns out they are all knitted by volunteers. And as part of this partnership with Age UK, Age UK receives a 25p donation per little hat that is knitted. Um, And uh, so Age UK, Lincoln and South Lincolnshire are taking part in this campaign. And so far, their volunteers in particular have knitted an incredible 23,000 
teeny tiny little hats. Um, But they're not content with that. They are actually aiming to hit a target of 30,000 hats um, or £7,500 worth of donations, uh, which I think is incredible. It is incredible. And I watched uh, the video for this campaign, the advert for the campaign in the office this morning. Rebecca will attest that I bawled my eyes out at the sight of it. Um, an incredibly lovely partnership with Age UK, incredibly touching and a great mission to have. Rebecca, can you knit? I mean, it's quite trendy, it isn't is. it, knitting People these days? Do it. And I can see it as being a craft activity. It doesn't make necessarily a lot of mess. Um, I, my mum has attempted to teach me to knit once, but it was like, it was like a sort of 10 minute lesson. And I, I, I was very flummoxed by it, to be honest. It just, so I have no I can't knit is what I'm trying to say I'm, I've tried and I can't uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have a go um, at some point my own mother has actually bought me a crochet set recently um, she wants me to have a go at learning how to do it over the summer but I've also not been brave enough to start yet but maybe I could set making a tiny innocent knitted hat as my goal yeah and see if I can you know that can be my incentive to to get started with my crocheting yeah, I mean, these hats are incredibly cute. I have to say people are very creative with them. So that like in the photos that I've seen, people knit them into like little frogs. There was like a little Nemo the fish one. Uh, there was one that was knitted to look like a post box, like a sort of red raw mail post box, which I found very meta because I live in one of those areas where people are doing like gorilla knitting and they're knitting hats for post, bo- post boxes. That's very specific. It's very specific. It's very cool. There's like a little topper that goes around the top of the post box and they'll have like a little scene or something on it. It's very cute. Um, so you buy the drink and then you get this little woolly hat for it. So what would you do with one of these little woolly hats? I'm absolutely a hoarder. So I'm completely (laughs) the sort of person who would collect tiny knitted woolly hats, even if I had no ultimate purpose for them. Um, I would just have them around the house. I think egg cups, you know, little little knitted hat for egg cups. You put your egg in it hat goes on the egg keep your egg warm like an egg tea cozy yeah and then you cut its head off and eat it i don't know (laughs) it's all we won't we won't go down that route but um you know i think you could you could find all kinds of purposes for those little knitted hats maybe you just have to start crocheting tiny animals or something for the purpose of wearing the hats Um, what about you what would you do i was thinking about i have like a a massive spice collection of like yeah spices in random jars all over i thought maybe put little hats on then i would know what's what you know the coriander's in the red and white stripe one the uh the ginger's in the in the frog one i don't know uh maybe that's what i should do i did think it would be fun they're obviously a bit too tiny for this but i did kind of think oh it'd be fun to kind of you know put one on that uh bust of sextus pompey from last week's episode absolutely he'd look marvelous the only thing that would make him look more annoyed about being strapped in the front seat of a car with a price tag on his face might be having a little woolly hat the indignity of a tiny knitted hat just at a jaunty angle um so anyway that's all from us this week on that note uh we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm emily burt and i'm rebecca cooney thank you to our guest alan lally francis and our producer aiden lyons at rethink audio we'll see you next week (laughs) 